and welcome to another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe, and anthropology. Each episode, a few of us from Deakin sit down with a visiting fellow anthropologist to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. I'm Timothy Neal, Research Fellow in the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization, and I'm joined here by my co-host, David Border-Giles, Lecturer in Anthropology at Deakin University. Our guests in this episode are Alison Kenner, who is an assistant professor in the Centre for Science, Technology and Society at Drexel University. And her anthropological work focuses on the study of contemporary health practices and how biomedical science and emerging technologies shape the way we understand and care for chronic disease conditions. As she explains in the podcast, she has done time as the managing editor of the journal Cultural Anthropology, and has also taught in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and in the Department of Women's Studies at the University of Albany, SUNY. Her work can be found in a number of journals, including Health, Risk and Society and Cultural Anthropology, and her book, Breathtaking, Asthma Care in a Time of Climate Change, will be published by University of Minnesota Press in November 2018. And also our guests today include Ziad Darwish, uh, who is an anthropologist who explores how unequal economic and socio-political orders are inscribed in bodies and landscapes through environmental pollution. He holds a PhD from Rutgers University, where he recently defended his dissertation, Waste and the Environmental Legacies of Authoritarianism in Post-Revolutionary Tunisia. Currently, he lives in New South Wales and is a sessional academic at the University of Wollongong School of the Humanities and Social Inquiry. You can find his work in Anthropological Forum and in the 2017 book Global Africa, edited by Dorothy Hodgson and Judith Byfield. A bit of context for this conversation that you're about to hear. It was recorded during an event uh, I chaired called the Anthropocene Campus Melbourne. We were on the fourth and final day of the campus, it was a long haul, and between a plenary and a keynote, I managed to quickly put some microphones in front of Ali and Ziad. Therefore, our conversation is understandably informed by not only the broader theme of the campus, which was elements and the elemental, but also by the things we'd seen and done. So at different points, you'll hear us discuss places that we visited as part of the campus, including the Western Treatment Plant in Werribee, which processes the majority of Melbourne's wastewater, and the work of people at the campus, in particular that of anthropologist Nicholas Shapiro. If you're into the social life of chemicals and toxicity, I know I am, I recommend you check Nick out. And if you're curious about the campus, just Google Anthropocene Campus Melbourne, and it should take you to the events Deacon website. I was jealous. Uh, because, uh, well, I was doing other fabulous things uh, and did not get to come to the Anthropocene campus events, even though I'd been hearing about them for weeks and weeks. Uh, And especially because I'm interested in waste and I'm interested in materiality and bodies. And because there were so many fabulous people there, uh, I definitely had a bit of academic FOMO. That was the intended effect. (laughs) But happily, we have documented it in various ways. So some of the keynotes will be online soon. And uh, yeah, I wanted to record this podcast precisely to try and grasp at some of the conversations that were happening there and and put them down in some kind of uh, material form. I also really loved uh, hearing this this thing that we've commented on in the podcast before, uh, talking to other people who work in discard studies. So Ilana Resnick and Chloe Armin and I all talked about we come to waste almost as a surprise. You know, we start off with one set of interests and it turns out that it leads us 
to the kind of back end of consumption or the back end of value. And it was really nice to hear that resonance with both Ziad and Alison coming to uh, coming to waste through other questions as well. Yes, yeah, it's not where they started, it's where they ended up. And this also leads me to kind of another interesting thing, which was that Ziad may be the first anthropologist we've encountered who's come through anthropology all the way from undergrad <laughs> to PhD. So Ziad, uh, when you hear this, uh, know that a prize is in the mail for having followed the disciplinary path, tried and true. One of the things that, uh, that reminds me of is how much I enjoyed hearing uh, these particular backstories, knowing that a lot of our listeners are likely uh, graduate students who are trying to figure out what their what their way is going to be into a a new project, uh, you know. And so I really appreciated hearing Ziad's story about sort of taking a few steps in one direction and having to uh, having to to make a a complete left turn into what became his project. And actually, I think he might have been one of the few people we've uh, we've heard from who did the the kind of classic blank slate airdrop into the field, walked into the field and, uh, as he said, sort of let the field tell the story to him. Well, with that thrilling note, perhaps we should get to the conversation with Ali and Ziad. Ali, how did you begin your journey into anthropology? I was kind of afraid that you would ask me this question i knew it was coming and comes I, with the territory and yeah so it's it's not clear right so it's i got my phd in science and technology studies from rensselaer polytechnic institute i came there by way of virginia eubanks who uh, wrote most recently automating inequality she's an sts scholar from that program who's now in the political science department at the university of albany in New York. She steered me towards science and technology studies and that uh, at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute was where I met Kim Fortune and Mike Fortune. And at that time, uh, they were just starting to edit the journal Cultural Anthropology when I landed there in 2006. Um, That was their first year of their editorship. And um, I came on as an editorial assistant at the end of my first year as a grad student there. Um, So that was how I came to the field of anthropology, um, was through the Journal of Cultural Anthropology. That's a slightly unconventional route. Like, what, what, what trajectory were you following before that, do you think? Well, I think, you know, I mean, my undergraduate education was in uh, philosophy and English, and my master's degree was in women's studies. And so I've always had, in in my postgraduate life, an interdisciplinary education. And yeah, I mean, anthropology was not at all on my radar, but publishing was. So before I came to uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, I worked for the New York State Writers Institute. And my master's project was doing uh, how to do research with hypertext platforms. Mm -hmm. So this was like, you know, the, the internet is emerging as a platform where we can do research and media and storytelling in a whole different way. So in an alternative kind of plot, I could have very easily gone into communications and been um, kind of a new media scholar that was applying to doctoral programs in that realm as well. 
so the the leap to working uh, at cultural anthropology seemed like a, a pretty uh, it was the next step going from my work as a graduate assistant for the New York State Writers Institute, where I was doing videography for their writing events, um, their readings, and also doing my own work building websites and publishing historical fiction on using Dreamweaver. So that was, yeah, so my master's thesis was like a hundred plus page historical analysis of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire of 1911 in New York. So that's a whole other thing that I mean, no one could, has heard before. <laughs> you could read that as an ethnographic project of a kind, a speculative yeah, right. ethnographic project. Right, and I, I don't think it was, you know, I had, um, you know, I came to my education by way of community college. So I, you know, did not finish high school and went to community college for five years part time. And then, you know, came to get my bachelor's degree uh, in my mid 20s. And so I didn't get exposed to the disciplines in in the way that an undergrad who entered a four year college directly from high school may have. And so yeah, I, I really didn't come to anthropology until I was a doctoral student. Yeah, until you were suddenly in the midst, deep in the midst of yeah, it. Yeah, really, really. I mean, very much like, you know. The method grabs a lot of people. It's ethnography, I think, that grabs a lot of people from the outside. I mean, it's interesting you came in through a journal, which is the first time I've heard that. But the method often, and you know, your, mm-hmm. your work is so deeply about relationships and so ethnographic, you know. Yeah, it, it. I mean, the ethnography was. Uh, I mean, I just fell in love with anthropology, um, and ethnography, and and the conversations and the theory uh, and the community. So, I mean, I've been going to, you know, the American Anthropological Association meetings since two thousand and eight every year, and the Society for Cultural Anthropology meetings every year. They've had it. And Ziad, what's the what are the coordinates of your journey into anthropology? It's. Basically exactly the opposite. I've done 10 years of anthropology all the way through and got into it through working with indigenous people. So um, uh, when I was 19, I somehow ended up in Guatemala for some reason and met um, a German woman in a bar who said she was coordinating NGO projects and she offered me a job to work on manatee conservation but that office of manatee conservation that I ended up working in in Guatemala was also doing indigenous people's land rights project. And in fact, all the people who ran the ecology also were indigenous. And uh, it was several projects over the year, but that was shortly after, um, that was, must, must have been in 2000 or so, so shortly after um, Guatemala finished its civil war. And so I was reading about what was going on, you know, I was pretty ignorant. Um, I was re- trying to catch up on the history of the country and... Um, read about the massacres that were happening, you know, the, the, the killings of indigenous people by the military. And we're traveling around the country, and I was like, okay, so this is one of the, the villages where it happened. Like, you know, I talked to my colleagues, and, you know, I wasn't very sensitive as a 19-year-old, I guess, but I was like, so... And also, as an Iraqi, you know, I grew up with war. Like, war was always in our house, and it was something that was wildly discussed on the table, like, every day. So, yeah, I've asked... Um, what happened here? And they're like, no, didn't happen here. Happened in the other village. I was like, okay, the book is wrong, you know. 
And then uh, we traveled to the other village and I was like, so what happened to you? And he's like, didn't happen here, happened in the other village. And that was sort of the, the theme of having grown up in a, in a household where the war was constantly discussed and then having been in Guatemala where nobody was talking about it. A friend of mine who was an anthropologist, who was an anthrop becoming an anthropologist at the time, gave me um, Linda Green's book, uh, Silence as a Way of Life, mm -hmm. which is about indigenous communities and the concept of structural violence basically um, is what brought me to anthropology, understanding that silence was something that was on these communities that they had had to live for you know, a, a colonial violence that was being perpetuated by the military. And so out of that, I went to England and started an undergrad in anthropology and then did a master's um, also in the anthropology of development. And then because the Iraq war had happened, the second war, 2003, I actually became, um, because I had worked in development, became a conflict management professional and tried to solve all the conflicts of the Middle East and somehow failed in the six years that I tried. I apologize to the world. But yeah, I've worked in conflicts all over the world for uh, five or six years and found that an, an, not a sustainable profession. A lot of the questions were with me still. I had done a lot of violence work during the... Um, during the MA and yeah wanted to go back to really wanted to go back to graduate school to answer some of the questions did that and ended up at Rutgers um, working with Dorothy Hodson because my original project was uh, on gender and it's been a beautiful journey it's been really really good and ethnography is sort of I guess what ethnography and ideas of power that is always hidden the, the power that is always there but hidden is what I think kept me with anthropology for mm -hmm. nearly a decade. So you both deal with ideas of pollution in your work, pollution, waste, uh, toxicity even. Did you start with pollution as a frame uh, for, the, for, the, for when you went into the field or was, was it something that kind of emerged and kind of forced itself onto your work? <laughs> and we were talking about this a little bit uh, this morning already. But uh, actually, so my first... Um, I, I was not thinking about pollution. My original research was on Alzheimer's disease and wandering. Um, and that project was a dissertation project, kind of uh, fell apart for a variety of reasons. So it wasn't necessarily pollution that I was interested in. When I came to asthma, I was really more interested, I think, in the embodiment of illness and uh, so pollution was always kind of secondary All, although I will say that I think a, a huge component of, of my research comes from uh, I did a lot of environmental justice work when I was younger in my late teens and early 20s um, and I think there was a sense after years of doing work as an activist that um, I was kind of very doom and gloom about anything related to environmental justice and had kind of given up hope on, on, um, on justice for, uh, for environmental wrongs. Um, so at that point, it, it was, I was really kind of, it was of interest to me, but it wasn't as interesting to me as, as the experience of embodiment. Nonetheless, I mean, with asthma... You know, it's indoor and outdoor air pollution that is a crux of the disease. So that was always kind of uh, at the heart of interviews. 
I didn't go in with pollution at all. I actually went in pretty blindly into my field site. My original um, PhD project was uh, on masculinities in Iraq. And then I had a baby the same year. I started a PhD and my partner said, uh, 2012 wasn't a very good time to be in Iraq. She's like, you're a father. This is not a very good idea and you have different responsibilities now. So I went to my advisor and said, um, I don't think I can go to Iraq. Um, I don't think it'd be the responsible thing to do now. And so she was generous and really wonderful about it. And she said, here's a grant. And I, and I said, this, this was 2011, so the Arab uprisings were happening at that moment. I was like, um, but I can go, you know, I know the landscape well, I know the politics well. I can go to Tunisia and sort of figure out what's going to happen there and find a story and follow the stories, you know. And I got a, got a grant to just spend two months in Tunisia to see what I wanted to do. And I went there with a vague, with several interests, sort of I read my way into it. And then, um, and with the things that I already knew. Um, but water was one of them, because it's fifth driest um, country on earth. And water was something that, uh, that had interested me at the time. And so I ended up at water rights in the south during that, um, ex ex during that research. And people, instead of saying, we ran out of water, what they were doing is they were blaming the, the phosphate industry, the largest industry and um, public industry also um, in the country for the pollution and extraction of water. And so through, water, through following a story of water, I initially then came to this particular instance. And it's really, when you look at pollution in Tunisia, that's the one that everyone knows about. It's the largest one-spot pollution in the Mediterranean Sea is these phosphate industries. And they're pumping um, cancerous products into the Mediterranean for decades already. Um, and the Tunisians were talking about that, but then out of that really came realization that all of Tunisia was being polluted and that that toxicity that you, where there was no proof in terms of numbers because of the dictatorship, toxicity was in all, I mean, all the peripheral sort of poor communities you walked in there and everyone was talking about respiratory problems and skin diseases, particularly in children and the elderly. So there was a geography of, of pollution that was written onto people's bodies that was there, that was, that was really hard to ignore as soon as you were in those communities. You know, I, I, one thing that has come up really powerful at this campus for me is the relationship between elements. And so you're talking water, but I'm wondering, was it just water or was it air too? Was, I mean, was fire? Mm -hmm. I mean, so what was water intersecting with these different mediums of, mm -hmm. of pollution? And was that also part of the story? Because you're talking respiratory, mm -hmm. you're talking skin. Yeah. It can all be connected to water. Mm -hmm. It's... It's metabolism. So all chemicals, like everything else, is metabolized through the elements. So if we want to talk about those four elements, um, so um, very polluted ponds will emit fumes that are then air pollution. Or as we have seen in our trip to the wastewater treatment plant, um, the solids, like the solids get separated from the sewage and get piled up in mountains and these mountains then become dust and the dust you know so there's a constant metabolization through all these different elements if you want them right but we are part and, and that's really that's everything else so that's that is what is good for us and what is not bad what is bad for us in terms of chemistry just metabolizes through these different systems 
Okay, mm-hmm. I, I have a story now yeah. about how I came to pollution. So, oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> so at that moment where my you know first dissertation project failed around Alzheimer's disease and wandering, as I was you know very quickly trying to um, figure out a new dissertation project, we had the 2008 Kingston coal ash disaster in East Tennessee, and so you have this you know old you know, 50-year-old power plant that had a coal ash retention pond right next to it that was way, filled way beyond capacity. And on December 23rd, 2008, the retention pond failed. And it spread, it was, it's actually the largest um, industrial disaster on U.S. Soil, right? For for some reason, coal ash coal ash disasters are pretty um, more common than you would think in Mm -hmm. the U.S. context, but they're not publicized well. And this goes along with just kind of the invisibility of Appalachia um, for for multiple reasons. But the coal ash, so the this ash, which is a, a fluid substance, spills over a huge uh, area of land and into two rivers. Um, But what was happening in the months following the coal ash disaster was the coal ash was drying on the land. So the retention pond was designed to keep the coal ash wet. And that was the waste storage uh, mechanism. Expo, you know, kind of unleashed on the land and drying, you have this incredibly toxic material that isn't regulated by the EPA, by the way, wow. but incredibly toxic material that um, is now drying and becoming airborne. So you have these videos by an organization, United Mountain Justice, of these dust clouds being kicked up around the, the disaster site. So the, you know, coal-fired power plant burning coal, trapping the coal waste as coal ash in retention pond and then, you know, being spilled onto the land and then uh, drying and becoming airborne. And I went down to uh, work with this organization, United Mountain Defense, as my uh, second dissertation project. And and the, the part of the reason that brought me there in the first place is e, Knoxville, Tennessee, which is 50 miles east of, of uh, Kingston, where the coal ash disaster happened, has very high rates of asthma. Mm-hmm. So this organization, the uh, Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America, had for many years in a row named Knoxville and two other Tennessee cities as the, like, the worst place to live in the U.S. if you have asthma. So I was like, okay, what is going on with asthma in East Tennessee? And then the coal ash disaster and pollution. <laughs> and it rolls on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just really talking about the Anthropocene and us, us trying so hard to control uh, biological processes and chemical processes. And it's, re- it's a really good example how... They're uncontrollable, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. Matter changes form and then suddenly becomes widespread and, you know, affects whole landscapes. Right, but there's also, and I mean, I think this comes out in your research too, I mean, this is also an issue of governance. Yeah, so, I mean, there was, you know, like with the, you know, in the case of Kingston, there was multiple uh, levels of failed governance in that yeah absence of governance maybe also yeah yeah um that's normally 
Or is it is it is it race? What leads to that? Because the absence of governments normally happens in particular areas. This was a uh, white middle class uh, neighborhood around the coal ash plant, mm-hmm. but um, what happened following the uh, coal ash disaster is you had a lot. You had a, a contract. You had a company come in and contract cleanup workers, mm-hmm. who were not given proper. Um, protection as they were working to clean up the coal ash and now you have you know something like five dozen deaths among the cleanup workers Mm -hmm. 10 years later from all sorts of diseases that are being linked to coal ash and there's an incredible lawsuit i remember sitting in epa um, community meetings uh, during during that summer after the the disaster and having women stand up uh, during the hearings and talk about how their husbands were coming home from working at the disaster site and just bringing all kinds of coal ash material into the house. They were just not being given the protective gear to, to work at the site and were being denied it, according to some of the reports that are coming out. So... Yeah, and the coal ash, as it was cleaned up, was shipped to a a poor black uh, county in Alabama, mm-hmm. a state away. So yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of layers. Yeah, the layers of inequality, and I guess I, I guess both of our works are in one way about environmental justice. You know, absolutely. Which which kind of brings me to a a big question about the kind of politics of pollution today being about how you can make these harms or these, ele- these harmful elements legible. And, uh, you know, there's been some attention recently to uh, the defunding of various environmental uh, monitoring systems, you know, whether that's the EPA uh, in uh, the U.S. or in my own fieldwork in the Northern Territory. So this making legible, uh, especially in scientific terms, is so crucial to kind of contemporary politics of pollution. And the things you're trying to draw attention to, and I guess we've already heard a little bit about this, are they, are they currently illegible? Are they hard to bring into legibility? Is that part of what your work is doing, maybe? Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, I have not, none of the work that I did in Tennessee, have, I've never written it up. Um, Do you want to talk about why? Um, is there a reason? Yeah, there's uh, doing too many projects at once. Right. And so it, it actually just, it didn't fit in the, it, it was kind of, I couldn't make it fit in the dissertation and I couldn't make it fit in the book either. Right. That case didn't fit with the rest of the cases and try as I try as I might, I couldn't make it work with the narrative of the book. And I think this is ethnography too, or this is the question of, you know, how ethnography works and 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 when it doesn't work and and in the kind of constraints of a book manuscript and narrative, it uh, I couldn't make it work with the others. Um, so I, I, I'm hoping to go back sometime next year and do some follow-up uh, interviews about the case. But on the question of legibility, you know, in my own work, I haven't been doing much to make 
pollution legible. Actually, that's a total lie. So the scrapyard project, right? Uh, the scrapyard project that I've been working on is a uh, using civic infrastructure, using this digital app that the city has, 311, mobile phone app. Um, to report what city Philadelphia? in the city of Philadelphia yeah so it's a civic it's part of their civic infrastructure to engage mm -hmm. community members and help community members govern mm -hmm. um, in a variety of ways mostly by reporting things that are wrong mm -hmm. and we used it for 12 weeks to report scrapyard violations in, in one neighborhood in, in Philadelphia and so you know, was it col collecting data on pollution in the way that an epidemiologist or air quality scientist would? No, but it was a community-based project that was, you know, pointing to the different sources of pollution understood through um, a community valence and also a municipal one. Mm -hmm. You know, tires are a form of pollution. When, when you know, the waste in a scrapyard gets five feet above the scrapyard wall, it creates a, a hazard. So that's a project where I've been working to point to pollution understood but it's a way of pointing to, to pollution in a way that I don't think we've written about because we're so focused on like the chemical and the toxic the, and the, the substance, the numbers the and the name. Yeah. And also the scientific, you know, it's the as Nick said in his in uh, his talk today, you know, part of the problem that we've known for a long time is we're regulating chemicals according to. Um, or we're, we're producing regulation by chemical piecemeal. And I think that that's, you know, why we are toxic in many ways. And so is this a different kind of paradigm for looking at pollution that doesn't reify this mm. model of taking things one chemical at a time? I, I think in a way exactly our method is um, to look at, um, to look at dif a different way of making uh, toxicity legible it's exactly that because it um, and it works it works really well so in um, in my in my work a, a large part was about how numbers made toxicity illegible how I worked in uh, you know an environmental statistics office in Tunisia and it was very clear how pollution People told me, the people who collected data told me how they were hiding the pollution deliberately, how it was deliberately excluded, how the communities were rendered invisible deliberately because out of um, a sort of a culture, an organizational culture of fear where nobody wanted to ever point to a problem because it would have like possibly resulted in their imprisonment in the end. So legibility through numbers is problematic to start off with because... Uh, toxic uncertainty at a term, you know, toxicity is always uncertain. We can never quite measure it. It depends on the time of day when you measure it. It depends on the, the relationship between toxicity and disease is hardly ever properly understood. And then most of the time when you, um, when you have, a, a, for example, uh, industry dumps into the, in most of the, 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 the global south of the developing world, industry dumps normally into the sewer. And so in this sewer, you have 
these highly toxic cocktails of different chemicals, and no one in the world understands how they affect environmental health. But under the dictatorship in Tunisia, toxicity and the, the suffering was rendered deliberately illegible. And part of my work was, on the one hand, to see how, what was excluded and how, exactly by what processes. And that gave you an interesting understanding of what happens also in democracies. You know, because seeing like a state and what is excluded from that, that process of seeing and the way that numbers are presented, not just the way that we understand toxicity, but that we choose to understand toxicity. And what really stands in the face of that is the community who, who's got that toxicity marked on its skin, yeah. you know, yeah. or, or, the, or in their lungs. Sorry. In, in yeah, the... No, I mean, I, I think your point about, um, you know, numbers and how, and how hard it is to prove linkages between these various uh, dynamics, um, the substance and disease, for example. I think that this is why I haven't considered that project one of pollution, right? Because... You know, in the beginning, I knew, you know, scrapyards, we know they're toxic. Mm -hmm. they're, they're burning material, they're leaking substances, it's in the ground. This particular scrapyard that we've been monitoring has been doing open burns of various kinds. Neighbors are weekly complaining of fire and smoke. And yet, there's no monitoring there, there's no city monitoring, there's no kind of scientific capacity to collect data that... Um, could be usable in a variety of regulatory and scientific spaces that could talk about toxicity. So our solution was, all right, we can't, we're not going to talk about this as pollution. We're going to talk about this as like safety hazards, you know? So it was a very pragmatic, all right, let's shut the scrapyard down by um, showing how often they are violating basic city regulations for safety, like stuff on the sidewalk and towering, mm -hmm. leaning towers of metal. And so it was really like, let's, we've got to put these, these guys out of business. And that was the impetus for for the project. We knew we weren't going to be able to get monitors. And, and most of the time, monitors don't speak um, in regulatory arenas, that data, citizen collected data, mm doesn't speak doesn't in a way, in those places, right. Yeah. But, you know, if we logged 120 or 150 violations in the span of two months, you know, that Philadelphia as that particular regulatory environment, culture, institution would respond better to that data than anything on air pollutants mm. or I mean, water. Also, there's an intrinsic problem uh, problem with legibility if you you know you want to go Mary Douglas on it as something that defies dirt and pollution being something that defies categories that we force categories that are very very narrow onto something that never quite works anyways but also as a methodology for an anthropologist a great one is to follow the pollution as a category that doesn't that doesn't fit you know so to work with the illegibility of pollution and follow it um, leads you to as Gay Hawkins says, it's, it's a disturbance. Pollution is a, is a form of disturbance. And what you do if you follow pollution is you follow disturbances that lead you normally to the forms of power imbalances quite quickly. So that if you want to be dialectic about it, um, the pure and the impure, the, the, the poor and the rich, very quickly once you follow something that's illegible, 
and doesn't quite travel in these categories, you end up um, looking at power and you're looking at power and the inequalities. Where does the access of uh, legibility land? You know, and most of the time we know it lands in poorer communities. In so the illegibility of um, pollution is methodologically very productive in a way. If you want it to be, you know, it, it's it's useful and it's it has its own pedagogy even. Hmm. You know, I I should clarify. Speaking of illegibility, I shouldn't say that we were going to. Sp- shut these scrapyards down because we weren't you know so this was a this was a community that requires the scrap business like and so the community members didn't want the scrapyard to shut down as a local small business they wanted the scrapyard to be a good neighbor um and so i misspoke there but like how do you compel a community member let's say but not, you know, a business in, in the neighborhood to kind of be follow community, uh, good community protocols. And it required a making legible um, something that, that wasn't. Um, in a Western democracy, that's the, only, that's the way to do it. That's right, the straightforward right. way to do it. In, in Tunisia, after the revolution, they attacked them. They ransacked yeah. the, the waste management infrastructure and burned it down. There's, you know, all over the country, yeah. the... the people would drive in there with with their cars and just burn everything and attack the very waste management infrastructure as a a different way of of, of working with your not so nice neighbor you right, know? right right um but of course that's not a solution in the end this sort of not in my backyard logic doesn't solve the problem of us overproducing waste the waste will always have to go somewhere well and this the other thing i'm wondering about your case is who who is working at these waste facilities so who is you know who is employed there and who is benefiting from them from that industry in the neighborhood so in my own case it's it's been very much like well, we're we're hurting our own family members and friends when we attack these mm-hmm. these businesses, for example. So Absolutely. there was that. Fun, but it sounds like that was not the case. It was also the case. It said, mm-hmm. "What is the the, the 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 old book, the Nash book? Uh, we eat the minds, the minds eat us." Uh-huh. You know. So yes, that's exact. Was exactly the case. So it was people um, hurting themselves, stopping their their own industries. But the beautiful thing about a revolution is. People try to, you can understand a, a revolution as what is a revolution and it's ideally a socio-political transformation, you know, from one state into another state that is administrative and everything else. But you can also ask what does a, what does a revolution do? And so you get at completely different answers and one of the answers is it's a deeply effective state. Mm. So people are revolting in a revolution, which means they're not... Uh, sometimes not exactly thinking what is the best course of action here. But it also means what does the revolution do is it, um, it uncovers all those things that weren't there before, that you couldn't say, that you couldn't see, and in a way it um, thereby offers new ways, new freedoms. It renders invisible things visible immediately. Mm. Um, and in my case, the waste was in the street with a a waste strike, the first people that striked in the revolution. So waste was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so the waste workers became hyper-visible. So the same people whose infrastructure was being attacked were also suddenly became cultural anti-heroes. They were hated because the waste was everywhere and they were striking. But for the first time, they actually had a platform because the waste management infrastructure was being destroyed, you know, in part. 
Um, so it made them hyper-visible. And so one of the things that the revolution does is it leads people to do very dumb things, maybe. But it ends up making all these things visible. The fact of state opens up all these new doors that then can lead to new politics of pollution and a new politics of dealing with your neighbor again. Right. Um, and that we see that until today, in Tunisia in many ways has been a very um, positive example where people have tried very hard to then integrate communities into decision making and uh, look at uh, local economies and how local economies can benefit from waste management infrastructure and how it can be distributed more equally. So they've tried very hard to to look at this issue that you brought up as neighborliness. Yeah, you know? oh, um, interesting. Which I think is the only way to deal with waste and that requires us to look at our own shit. Right, you it's know? so interesting because I think in... in <laughs> In, in the context that I'm working in, there's a sense of carefulness, like you don't want to rock the boat, right? Because this is like in an almost gentrifying area. And so there's a lot of sense that we want to preserve good relations. We want to work together. We want to follow city protocol. So not revolutionary, almost the opposite. Like we want to go with the law a bourgeois yeah a bourgeois yeah, but it's like a language of corporate responsibility but you know? like we, we're sorry we trespassed now let's become partners yeah, yeah and i don't want to homogenize no, the community that i'm talking about i mean there is a you know there are multiple different strategies kind of being used in this community too but you know what does it look like for an anthropologist to enter the field in collaboration with community members to address polluting facilities maybe it's well let's make sure we follow the law so to what extent am i kind of as as a academic collaborator maybe um steering things in in a particular way well which kind of brings me to something i was curious about which is you know the field of uh science and technology studies uh which is uh i think influential for all of us in different ways, you know, has a very strong theoretical foundation in being against calculation and even quite suspicious of calculation and, and regulation. You know, that is where that's where capital is trying to capture us. And it seems like in, in, in both of your work and, and, uh, and in a lot of the exciting work that's happening now, we kind of need to reclaim calculation and regulation, but we don't kind of maybe have the theoretical tools developed yet to be pro, <laughs> pro-counting, pro, pro-regulating. If they would be democratic processes, let's say in an ideal world, so having been deeply in this environmental um, data collection field and seen what it can do and what it can't do, I could see how not just us as academics, but how um, data governance could be a lot more democratic and include the communities that are affected by the data from the very beginning to say because the WTO says or because the World Health Organization says we have to look for these pollutants yes be suspicious of that but then to say how can we combine that with the fact that there is a mark on the skin so how can we make even models of data collection more collaborative that in, that include the communities and I think we're not just afraid of the paradigms behind data. I think we also lack the skills to, I mean, few of us, I mean, certainly I am, I've really struggled with understanding the statistical methods that I was looking at most of the time. But I think that really as social scientists and in SDS, what we're doing is we're bringing culture and society back in. And so making any kind of data 
less an an iron cage of rationality and infusing it with society and societal processes and culture and ethics and and affect would produce a better data. So I think think having having even in a statistical office having an SDS person sitting on board and say, let's look at the process and how can we collect this data. And then of course working with the people themselves as SDS people, when you, you work with, and many of us do work with scientists, you work with fire scientists, you work with scientists in many ways, you know. Working with those scientists, you realize once you personalize the data, that then becomes our data as social scientists. So even though these people are producing numbers, once they become our research um, interlocutors, that data becomes our social science data. So there's an interesting moment of translation between numbers and you know narrative data that I think we all use. And I, I agree that we should get a lot better and shouldn't be as afraid of data. Mm. I was going to say, I mean, when the one thing that strikes me, and this is probably because, you know, I, STS is my core discipline, is that there's actually a lot of people who are like, we need to lean into regulatory infrastructures more. And I think that's coming from people who do law and society in STS or STS and law, people who are doing the political sociology of science and technology. The thing about STS is it's a huge kind of interdisciplinary mix. And so I find you know, sociologists, um, Scott Frickle, David Hess, Gwen Audiner, even, you know, I, I was at a 4S panel, I think two years ago, it was talking about citizen science. And um, as someone, I can't remember who now, you know, said, I think we have, we have championed citizen science quite a bit. And we need to be careful that it is not, um, letting regulators and the government off the hook where it needs to do its job. And I see, uh, and so it's almost like we need to start pushing on government more um, at this moment and seeing the limitations of citizen science in in ways that uh, we, we haven't really kind of talked about yet. I mean, we've talked about it in, a, in an epistemological sense, but um, to t- kind of talk more about its limitations as a mechanism of governance. And I think even in my own work on the scrapyards, looking at Philly 311 as a civic engagement app, you know, calling on citizens to partner with and help the city do its job, to what extent does that kind of enter this area where you're you're kind of covering for a under-resourced government. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the labor's being redistributed right. yeah. back to you guys. Yep. Yep. Maybe yeah. a nice way to do it is, I mean, the, what is the, the concept that you introduced that I really loved, and it would, have, it, would have, it would have been a really interesting concept to have in my repertoire when I was in the field, and it's certainly one that I would look at, is this concept of attunement. And maybe this, the, this relationship between us and data should go both ways. In fact, I mean, I'm sort of to redeem ourselves against your question, I think, <laughs> I think we actually all do pretty well in our very particular fields of understanding the data and the science behind it, in the particular fields. Yeah, you know? yeah absolutely. I mean, um, you, you're flying blind if you, if you can't read exactly. the, the documents of governance it, or you know, un- unpack the algorithm that, that produced the result. But where we come from is that as a theoretical kind of good is not, for me, all that clear. 
at this point. And, and to, within that, to finish the thought, is maybe to allow the people who are to have that data to take them on, I don't know, like an attunement workshop that allows them to attune into the places that they collect data mm-hmm. and say, this is also layered. And we try very hard to understand where you come from. Do we critically, I guess, to really critically engage with the data? So that way around, we could offer something. But the way that you were talking about, Tim, really critically engage to engage with the data, I think, on, on that level would, would require us to have maybe a greater level of expertise in it. Mm. But rewriting it from the bottom, I think, really coming up with data, different data collection, storage, redistribution methods, um, if anything, the, the wastewater station was really interesting for me because I know wastewater stations in other contexts. And what they're doing is um, they're rethinking the concept of governance, you know, of waste governance also. And part of that is them putting their data out there. And that's not just the numbers, but it's all the knowledge of what happens to, you know, bodily wastes in Melbourne they are reversing data streams in a way and opening them up. And maybe that's where, it's, that's where we can go. We can, we can learn from that. Mm-hmm. We've been uh, at the Anthropocene Campus Melbourne for the last four days or so, three and a half. Uh, that's where I've stolen you away from. So I was wondering, is the Anthropocene influential in your work? It may be, maybe it's not. And if it isn't, why not? If it is, you know, how is it uh, useful for what you're you're trying to do. So one of the things I've been tracking is when Anthropocene gets used and when climate change gets used and how those, you know, what that signals and who that's speaking to and how is the work different. Um, and I was, you know, really um, in this morning's uh, session, Margaret Jolie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ta- uh, climate change. I mean, it was very clear that she was, and not to uh, kind of, create these categories or camps, but I mean, she was clearly invoking the language of climate change. Um, and that's kind of the the place where I situate my own work in Philadelphia and uh, in policy analysis is, is looking at climate adaptation planning and also doing work with municipal agencies in Philadelphia. And so I have felt like a lot of the work that I've been doing related to the Anthropocene um, has been mostly very much honing in on climate change and using the term climate change. As I said the other day in the campus, um, the only time when I am using the term or framework of the Anthropocene is when I'm talking with Scott Knowles and folks uh, who are conversations on the you know in a, yeah in, in, on an academic insight amongst right us, yeah. right and yeah. and and reading but not in my conversations with the engineers I work with not in conversations with folks in public health which is where I, I'm spending most of my time mm-hmm. right and so so to the extent that it is shaping my work I think it's shaping my work quite a bit actually, but the chunk of time spent using the vocabularies of the Anthropocene and even the paradigms of the Anthropocene hasn't come as much into the the work that I'm that I'm doing on the ground. I'll be interested to see how much it comes in with my next book project. Um, two things. So I, Margaret 
uh, Jolie, I, what she said, the fig leaf of the anthropos. Yeah. So while my research, I do nothing but follow man-made materials and see how they play out in politics and people's lives and bodies and landscapes. They are all man-made, but it would never occur to any of the people that I work with to say this is humanity who did this to me you know right. it's actually the very opposite anthropos makes absolutely no sense in an environment also in a post-revolutionary environment that is about justice strongly strongly about justice where it is always and the answers of where these materials come from that that communities are affected by they're very specific and people know exactly where they come from in one area i was working in people would say this pollution, the way that we feel, comes from the 1996 uh, textile agreements that we signed with the European Union. Mm -hmm. The pollution started when the clock changed on how many Levi's jeans we have to produce. Uh, it was suddenly, because of, because of EU agreements, it was suddenly so and so many hundred more an hour. And it was then that the dumping started. So, and then the ma majority of people I worked with said, no, this is a dictatorship. And calling this humanity would have left out this whole ability, this whole ability to ask for accountability. I mean, it would have hidden everything that they wanted at that moment, which was justice, which was saying the dictatorship is killing us, is doing this to us. Or... Uh, capitalism is doing it to us but even then people wouldn't even say capitalism they would very specifically understand what processes led to the pollution that was in their lives and in their bodies and so we we were talking about and we can go back to this in a second of sort of how do we think about the anthropocene after the anthropocene campus and in our works our work as anthropologists is intrinsically specific and the anthropocene is intrinsically non-specific and in a way, um, it's very useful to think with, but I think as an effect on people's lives. If, you, if you're not specifically working with a community that uses the language. But I think that, you know, one of two things on this, I, th I think that there are people who are calling for, you know, the, the specificity of the Anthropocene. And I think that's part of the work that we have to do is to kind of excavate the local and specific details of the Anthropocene on the ground, and that's the work of, of, you know, ethnography. But as I was listening to Julie this morning in our conversations in the Rovian uh, plenary panel, the, the concepts and the paradigms that come with the Anthropocene, I mean, I can hear that in my interviews with people about climate change. You know, I can totally hear it in, in the way that they talk about society. I can hear it in the way that they talk about humanity and and their conceptualization of climate change. I just am not sure. Yeah, I'm 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 hearing it. I'm just not sure to what extent I want to bring the Anthropocene into my analytic framework. We all have choices to make, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm just not clear to what extent uh, it gets me where I want to go or it's the, the framework that's needed. So I work with Kim Fortune's concept of late industrialism a lot, for example, and I've found that to be really useful in the context of Philadelphia. Now, as I get this po project on pollen off the ground, however, you know, do I see myself using the Anthropocene more? Certainly I do, especially this idea of the biochemical 
and you know uh, an alter alter biochemistry uh, as was uh, as was discussed this morning and I think Hannah Landecker's work was fabulous I'm really excited about what she's doing with the Anthropocene of the cell this this brings me to something I think is interesting to point out which is concepts that get to sit on the side of analysis and yeah, concepts right. that get to sit on the side of the worlds that we are encountering and, and, and involving ourselves with. I, ha- I think I was telling you I had a, a, an experience like this. One of the places I do field work is in a, a fire science lab. And in that lab, you know, people ask me about the rest of my life. And I might say something like, I'm organizing this Anthropocene campus. What's a campus? <laughs> What's an Anthropocene? Yeah. And you get to see, does it take root in their world at all? Is it meaningful to them? And if it's not, then perhaps it just doesn't need to live in that place. Mm. The funny version of this is that they took an abstract of a paper I'd written for uh, for uh, an STS journal and circled all the words that they thought were I'd made up. Hilarious. That is so cool. They sit on, and and this, this for me made clear exactly what you're saying. There are words that concepts that get to sit on the side of analysis and those that get to sit on the side of the world or yeah. the field or whatever we want to say. Right. First of all, an anthropologist's first, like, worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> like, your interlocutors are seeing all these words with you. It's like, what's that about? <laughs> no, right. You know. But I mean, also, too, I have limited amount of time. And, you know, I... For the Anthropocene campus in Philadelphia... You know, we had circulated the the announcement about the campus widely across the university among our collaborators in engineering and the med school and public health, for example. And we didn't draw them into the campus. We're writing grants together, too. I mean, I just don't have... Uh, you know, it's again, it's a question of choices. And I, you know, I have decided at some point, maybe it wasn't the most intentional decision, but most of my time is going to be spent in these interdisciplinary spaces. At the same time, I'm, you know, really kind of concerned that our spaces for you know, critical social science, humanities scholarship are shrinking and that we really, really need to guard the spaces where we do just, you know, lean into concepts like the Anthropocene and keep the space, the space to ourselves. Um, and that, you know, the world needs this kind of work, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I think to, to rephrase your question a little bit, what, uh, how did we think different about our work in the context of an anthro- like a post-anthropocene campus mm. and for me the big one is scale it's a very very useful concept to think about scale to think about as you said from the the cosmic down to the genetic and scale of course allows you gives you then analytical buy-in on each of these levels so the very research that you already have in your hands you change the scale of analysis on it and it gives you very, very different, you, it gives you, first of all, very different questions you have to ask um, of the material, but it gives you very different answers that, as I have learned, and, uh, and I've seen it in other people's work, but it was very, very rich um, this, these past days, is they cross-fertilize each other. They will open, you take a cosmic look at your community and it will open up spaces that you hadn't thought about. And you take, you know, a genetic, granular look at it and it opens up spaces that and these are always for me they always have to be and I guess for a lot of us they actually are 
they're political spaces that we can inhabit in new ways, where we can also push back in new ways, where we can produce maybe more space. Mm -hmm. And the Anthropocene, in a way, as an analytical concept, allows us to do that, allows us to, for example, as social scientists, over that we relate a lot more, con connect a lot more to scientists because we suddenly talk about the bacterial life a lot more than we have. And the Anthropocene figures centrally into that transformation. And the same is true about a lot of other concepts. So I think it's, it's a very useful concept. And it's certainly changed the campus itself. It's certainly changed the way, allows me to think very differently about my work and the work of others. And I really appreciated at the end of the session today, you know, this question of, well, how are we, you know, how are we approaching or how are we creating, imagining a responsible freedom of the Anthropocene? Um, and, and also, too, Nick Shapiro's kind of, you know, we need to get into the nitty gritty of how, you know, how we are doing work in the Anthropocene and how we're creating these alter lives, um, I think is, is also really important work that we're doing. I think that's why the, the Anthropocene campus as a, as a space of, of scholarly community is such an important one because it's, uh, you know, it's a space of practice. It's an ethical space. And that's, yeah. it's, it's, and exactly, I completely with you as, as a sort of, even though it wasn't a final panel, it was really good summing it up in that way to think of ourselves of how do we position ourselves doing, being scholars in the, in the Anthropocene in a way, what does that mean to relationships, to our relationships with our communities and, and towards each other and certainly, um, ethics and ethics of the Anthropocene and ethics of, of political scholarship also. Um, seems to be essential to it. So Ziad, Ali, thank you so much for spending time in this conversation. And uh, we look forward to all your work uh, in the uh, weeks, months, years to come of our Anthropocenic time. Thanks for joining us for another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. Today, we've been speaking with Alison Kenner, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Drexel University, and Ziad Darwish, a lecturer at the University of Wollongong. If you'd like to learn more about Ziad's work, he has a website, ziaddarwish.com, uh, and you can find Alison via your favourite search engine or the links in the show notes. Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is produced by me, David Giles, and Timothy Neal, with the support of the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. If you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at DH Border Giles, and Tim is at TD Neal. And if you enjoyed this episode, think about giving us a review on iTunes or elsewhere. 